You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and we all know that therapists' favorite part of doing our jobs is the mountains of documentation that <laughs> we all have to do. And so in this episode, we are joined by our good friend, Dr. Ben Caldwell, and he's here to talk about all the, the different things that go along with with putting stuff down on paper, typing it into the computers. And most importantly, what we're here for is to break records. Nice. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Caldwell. Always a pleasure to have you here. It's always good to talk with you both. I don't know about you, but for me, when it's time at the end of a, of a day of seeing clients to sit down and do the documentation of those sessions, that is overwhelmingly the most exciting part of my day. It's I look forward to it. I think most of us as therapists do. We think, gosh, I wish I could just get through with my sessions so I could do more documentation. Oh, you too. I, I think that I understood the joke about breaking records. Do we need to explain what record is being broken here? No. No, you're not going to explain. <laughs> well, I, I was just mostly going for the pun on... Not that Ben is now patient, the person that's been records. on the podcast almost as much as us. I mean, like... <laughs> <laughs> There's an old adage in politics, and I think it applies to comedy as well, that if you're explaining, you're losing. Yes, yes. yes. I will leave that there. So for people who somehow don't know who you are, who are you, Ben? Well... First, I mean, I feel like I should start with, don't you know who I am? No, I'm not. <laughs> Most people Listen don't to all know of me. his pre fun. previous episodes. We'll put those in the show notes. <laughs> well, my name is Ben Caldwell. I'm a licensed MFT in California. I am the education director for Simple Practice Learning, and I've done a whole heck of a lot of policy-related work over the years, which is how I got into uh, some of the weeds of documentation and policy around it. So I spent a decade or so as the legislative and advocacy chair for AMFT California. I have a book on California law for MFTs, uh, LPCCs, and LCSWs. I teach law and ethics for Cal State Northridge, as does the good Dr. Whitholm here. Um, and I, 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 I am obligated to correct you. I am not a doctor. Not a doctor. Uh, what, not a whatever doctor. you say, doctor. And <laughs> Still not a doctor. I, I do a lot of uh, policy-related stuff. I, I have a lot of interaction with our licensing board and remain very involved in, in advocacy work. Well, that's why we called you when we said, what the heck is the Cures Act? So before, <laughs> before we get to the Cures Act, we have, we have never done an episode before on documentation. and Sure, and we also, have. We did, did an episode with Melissa. <laughs> it has been a long time since we have done a podcast on <laughs> documentation. And I, I find that as information comes out, as laws change around documentation, that it helps to have a primer of what is necessary in documentation, there seems to be just kind of this amorphous nebulous of 
if you don't write stuff down, it never happened. But what you actually need to write down, there's some questions as far as what actually do you need to write down. So I want to start at the absolute basics. What needs to go into a progress note? So that's a great question. And part of the reason why you've had this experience of the answer to that question being being frustrating and, and nebulous is because it is kind of nebulous. If you look at state laws, if you look at professional ethics codes, what they tend to require is that our documentation be accurate, adequate, and timely. And laws and ethics codes don't tend to go into much greater detail than that. So when you get into, okay, well, what actually belongs in a progress note? What do I minimally have to put there? There is quite a bit that is dependent on who's paying for services, what are your workplace standards, what's relevant to the population that you're seeing. There is a great deal of flexibility in terms of what might be considered accurate, adequate, and timely. Now, I think we all have kind of the the sense of what's the standard of care, what's common in the profession about, you know, for a progress note, you ought to have the start and stop time. You ought to have location of service, client name, date, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you get into all those acronyms about how do you structure the details of a note. There's the, the SOAP format and the PERP format and these other formats that you might have learned along the way. But those formats are all just ways of organizing information. They don't necessarily tell you how much information needs to go into each section. That really does go back to workplace standards, payment requirements, and and the like. And I think a lot of people are somewhere on this pretty wide spectrum of super detailed notes with lots of information to make sure that that it's all captured, they'll remember what happened in the session, that they'll get paid if it's reviewed. And then the other end of the spectrum is put as little as possible because if it's subpoenaed, you don't want to get in trouble. Yeah. And the thing is, each of those perspectives is justifiable. And you need to be thoughtful about who is my audience, who are the, the clients that I'm working with, but also how are these notes likely to be used? Now, I'm not a big believer in organizing your practice around fear of a lawsuit or fear of a complaint. So, you know, if concern about a potential subpoena is driving how you are writing records in ways that aren't useful to you, you know, if you leave out information that you really ought to have access to for your information, for your memory, for sort of continuity of the therapy, then that's not necessarily a good outcome. But I do understand writing records from the perspective of, you know, if I'm working with clients who are mandated for therapy by a, by a court system, by probation, and that court system or other people involved in the client's life, if they're going to be requesting the client file, then yeah, I'm going to be a little more careful about what goes in there because I know about how things can be used against my client. So I want to be protective. But it's not like the legal system and me are the only potential audiences for my records. So I have to give thought to, okay, my client might request records at some point. I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. The court system might request records. Other treatment providers might request records. And also, you know, heaven forbid, what happens if I get hit by a bus? If my client needs to continue their care 
very quickly with a different treatment provider. Is that provider using my records going to be able to effectively pick up where I left off? Or is the client going to have this experience of kind of starting from scratch, having to retell their story in addition to trying to build a relationship with a new provider and also grieving the loss of their therapist who was unfortunately just hit by a bus? That's a lot for a client to deal with all at once. So oh, getting <laughs> getting into to some of the, the granular stuff, you know, one of the questions that I hear a lot of therapists ask is direct client quotes. Do those go into the progress notes or is this something where we keep maybe a separate set of records, maybe something called psychotherapy notes that is maybe a little bit more for the therapist than what could be out to any of these audiences that you just described? Yeah, and I think it's a it's a great question that depends a lot on the nature of your work. So my clinical specialty is working with couples. And I don't get a lot of external requests for records. I don't get a lot of requests from clients for their records. But in that work with couples, it's really relevant to me to have in my notes what some of the most impactful moments and impactful quotes from uh, prior sessions took place so that I can refer back to them. I can say, you know what, in the last session you said, whatever the thing was, and that seemed like a really important moment. I'd like to kind of talk more about that. So there's no harm that I experience from putting direct client quotes into my official record, my my progress notes. It's relevant to my clinical work. It's relevant to continuity of care. And it's not really anything that's going to be damaging to my clients, even if these records are subpoenaed or come out in some other kind of context. If you are working with clients where for whatever reason, you don't feel comfortable or you're directed by your employer not to put client quotes into a progress note. Then you have this option of a different kind of record from a session called a psychotherapy note. The terminology gets really confusing because if you just think about it logically, a progress note from a psychotherapy session is something that you might refer to as a psychotherapy note. But psychotherapy note actually has a very specific meaning in law. And this is part of HIPAA, where if you include things like session start and stop times, if you include things like prognosis or or a summary of symptoms, that kind of thing, all of that stuff, treatment plans, that all goes in the client file. That all, by definition, is part of their, their medical or their treatment record. A psychotherapy note needs to be stored separately from the client file. And it really is more for sort of your contemporaneous experiences of what's happening in session, your your analysis of conversation. You can put direct quotes there, right? So things that are impactful moments, things that you maybe want to refer back to in another session. If you don't want to put it in the medical record, you can put it into a psychotherapy note. The best differentiation of these two that I've heard. It's not mine. I can't take credit for it. But I came across this differentiation a few weeks ago of a progress note versus a a psychotherapy note, where a progress note might say something like, client appeared distressed, uh, worked with client on impulse control, understanding the consequences of a potentially dangerous behavior, separating helpful from unhelpful social relationships, and developing a safety plan. Right? That's all very common 
kinds of things that you would put in a progress note. And then sure. in your psychotherapy note, you might say, client robbed bank. That to me is a helpful <laughs> distinction. There's nothing in that psychotherapy note that is diagnosis, prognosis, functional analysis. But as a therapist, I want to be able to refer back to that and know that for a future session. Sure. <laughs> One of the things to keep in mind here, though, is that in many states, including California, psychotherapy notes are not exempt from subpoena. So if you got a subpoena for a client's medical record, you could supply their file and not their psychotherapy notes. But if you got a subpoena, as is quite common, for all notes, records, documents, etc., related to your care of this particular client, you can't hold back your psychotherapy notes. That would be considered to not comply with the subpoena. So wow. what, what, what people are hearing is don't take notes. Just write <laughs> down the minimal amount of what needs to be there. Well, if your concern primarily is about a subpoena, then maybe. But even then, even if you're worried about getting subpoenas, or even if you get subpoenas a lot in your practice, I don't know that minimal note-taking is necessarily the answer. You know, if your client records get subpoenaed at some point, those records are often the first and best line of defense for you against an accusation that you've somehow done something wrong. If those records establish that your treatment was in keeping with the standard of care, that you did diagnose effectively and you provided good quality psychotherapy and meaningful interventions that were consistent with your treatment plan, you know, all that stuff works in your favor and protects you where a very, very minimal progress note might make it more difficult to establish that you are providing competent and, uh, you know, appropriate to a minimal standard care. Well, and I think the other thing that I've heard is if you, if your notes can stand alone, you're less likely to be called to court. Whereas if you have very little in your notes, you may have to go to court. You can still say, well, I don't recall or blah, 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 blah. Like you can do all the things and, you know, we'll link to Nicole's episode on, on how to prepare for court. But I think there's, there's an element of finding, and, and I like what you said about like not writing your notes with fear of subpoenas, because I, I, I agree with that to extent. I think we have to be aware of it. It has to flavor how we document. And I, I was trained in a, a DMH contracted agency or Department of Mental Health contracted agency that imagine that you've got Medi-Cal watch, you know, reading the note, you've got your client reading the note, and you've got kind of the professional, you know, kind of board reading the note so that it's it's something where you don't write for yourself, you write for those those audience members and and keep the notes there. I think that I've never really used psychotherapy notes for exactly the reason that you were saying, because it, I always saw that as kind of like secret notes. <laughs> but they're not really <laughs> yeah. secret notes. You know, and I, you know, it's so funny because like you, 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 you're so shaped by the people that initially teach you these things. And I had a supervisor that was like, I don't write progress notes and my psychotherapy notes are just like scratching, you know, chicken scratch and I throw them away. It just like, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is horrible documentation practice. And then I went into public mental health and, and learned like intensively <laughs> what the, the clinical loop and what goes in a note and all that stuff. And that, and we'll, we'll link to Dr. Melissa Hall's episode because that was what she had talked about there. But I think it's this thing of weighing the risks and benefits both to yourself, because I think that I find when I'm most timely with my notes, I'm most able to have 
some nice continuity in the work and I'm, I'm able to actually do the work effectively versus trying to remember what I talked about last week, you know, those kinds of things. But, you know, kind of that element as well as making sure that you hit all the marks and also are protecting yourself in case somebody else is going to look at those notes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, a couple of things there. First of all, I am a, a big fan of both Melissa Hall and Nicole Stoller-Peterson. So they are great, great resources on notes and court prep. I, I really have a lot of admiration for, for their work. They're great sources of information. To your point, I also was trained to imagine these notes being read by different audiences. And and they may or may not ever be read by these different audiences, but it's just good to think this through when you're deciding what level of detail do I put in here? Uh, is this something that might help or hurt my client? You know, think about what the experience would be like for a client to read these notes, for my colleague or supervisor to read these notes, for a court system to, or like a judge, to read these notes. And then uh, another treatment provider who's trying to pick up with the client's care, if the client moves or something. And all of those perspectives are ones that I think are really relevant. You're not just writing the note for yourself. And it's easy, especially in private practice, to fall into this trap of thinking, well, nobody else is ever really going to ask for these. Right. So then you get a little bit lazy. You know what? It's the end of the day. I'm tired. I'll, I'll take care of my notes tomorrow. And then tomorrow becomes the day after that. And then it eventually becomes next week. And you know, I can't speak for anybody else here, but for me, the thing that makes my documentation so important is that I don't have a great memory. And if I'm not recording those key moments in session, very quickly after they happen, then, you know, I could still go in and write a progress note a couple of days or a week later. It's going to be a very basic nothing kind of note. And I'm going to start my next session with, so how was your week? Which I think is not a great way to start a session. I think it works a lot better to build in some continuity and start by saying, okay, last time you were here, Here's what we talked about. Here's what happened. Here's where we left off. Tell me about what happened with that since then. And of course, anything else the client wants to bring in, they're, they're going to bring in. But it at least makes it easier to jump into the meat of therapy and provides this nice continuity for the client where they, they feel important. They feel like they are being remembered and cared for when I can create this thread, create this continuity. That's that's the main benefit my records provide to me. Or, or that really scary part when clients come in and they just start the session with, I did exactly what you told me last week. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're just sitting there kind of in this, well, I, I hope it was something good. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but one of the, the things that led up to this episode and particularly why we reached out to Ben here is this new law that was supposed to go into effect November 1st. And by the time you hear this, November 1st is over a month ago. So you're okay. It got pushed to April of of 2021 (laughs) here. But this 21st Century Cures Act about open notes, and Mm -hmm. this makes it to where you know, pretty good idea by non-medical people, non-therapists. You know, therapists, you know, Congress decides patients should have more access to their records. And 
our first action was reach out to Ben and be like, we need to panic, right? <laughs> and my immediate response, because if I recall correctly, Kurt, and I, and I may not, I think you're asking, should we do an episode on this rule change? Because this is such a big deal and we should all panic. And I said, well, no, this will be like a five-minute conversation. I, I don't think it's enough to hold <laughs> up an entire episode precisely because we shouldn't be panicked. So here's the deal. There is this federal office. It's the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT which don't go to sleep yet. I promise this gets even more arcane. The (laughs) Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT has established a certification standard that is an optional certification standard for health IT systems. For those systems that engage in this optional certification process, by it was supposed to be November 2nd actually of, of this year and they pushed it to April 5th of next year. So by April 5th of next year, those health IT systems that participate in this voluntary certification need to uh, give patients access to all of the information in their electronic medical record without charging them for it. So that's a good thing. I actually really appreciate the the underlying philosophy here that that clients ought to be able uh, with as little headache and as few steps as possible, clients ought to be able to see what's in their medical records. That's that's great philosophically. And for most of us as therapists, this rule change means nothing to us. Because again, it's an optional certification at the federal level. There are about two dozen, last I checked, federal programs that make reference to this optional certification. But the change, the sort of technical change, is a thing that in the unlikely event you are using one of these specific systems, the system needs to make available by April 5th of 2021. It's not something that you as an individual practitioner need to be doing much of anything about, even if this applies to you, which it probably doesn't. So if I'm hearing you correctly, this is for like the electronic health records, the places like Simple Practice, that they may optionally be a part of the certification process. And if they are, they need to move some code around in the background to give clients access me as a clinician, I don't have a whole lot of things that I need to do different right now. Unless you decide that you really want to dive into creating your own electronic health IT system, and you're interested in developing what's called an API, an application programming interface, such that uh, third-party applications can access the data in the health IT that you have personally built in your spare time, yeah, I wouldn't be losing sleep over this. I think the the biggest piece is the potential for clients if we are using one of these systems, which for record, simple practice is not one of these. And it looks like most of the electronic health records that private practitioners are using don't have this optional certification. So we don't need to worry about it. For our, our modern therapists who are working in hospitals or working in larger organizations, this has been, I, I, mean, I was hearing in some of the Facebook groups that this has been rolled out. People are understanding that that clients can have access through like a portal or 
it may be even immediate access. And so depending on if this were something that would go further, we don't have to do anything on the technical end, but we need to be aware that at some point, if, if things were to go further or if our electronic health record would get this certification, that we would need to be prepared that our clients could look at our notes almost immediately. And so it would be making sure that they're all those things, timely, adequate, and, and accurate, and, and, and doing those things properly and being aware that clients could be looking at it. So it's, it's another reason to, to make sure that your documentation is clean, that it makes sense, and that you're aware that and this has been always the case, but clients can always request their records. And it's exactly, yeah. So, so this shouldn't be a difference. But I think when, when it's like, oh, they could be looking and I don't know about it. Cause I think the idea that somebody could go into their, their health record from a client portal. And so I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the ability to have that clinical conversation about the records. And I've got, I recently had, well, I guess kind of recently within the last couple of years, I've had to do a, a full, you know, records request for a client. And there was definitely some things in there that I needed to explain. Like mm-hmm. I didn't r- restrict, even though it was, it was on the, the boundary of whether or not it would impact her mental health. Like I, I had to explain what was in there. Like I decided to give the records and I deci- decided to have a deeper conversation. If she just popped in there, that would have been, I think, pretty horrible. So I think that was what people were most worried about. And it sounds like that's not the case, except maybe in some of these larger, like medical, you know, hospital kind of settings where that's, they're, they're planning for that and they've had infrastructure put in place for that. Exactly. And, you know, in the places that do have that kind of infrastructure, they usually have some kind of guidance for their clients or patients as well to say, you know, not only here's how you can access your records, but also if you have questions about your records, here's some additional information, some additional context, and who you can contact. Now, the way that these systems are building out client portals and eventually they have to they have to do an API so that the the third party phone app of the client's choosing can access their electronic medical record. That's something that comes in like the end of 2022. But the places that are building this all out, they are providing, I think, pretty good context to patients or clients about the information that's available to them, how to access it, and also just like any good IT system, there is an audit trail. So it may well be the case that clients, you know, if you participate in one of these health IT infrastructures, there's, there's still the likelihood that, yes, a client might be able to go in and access their record without your knowing about it ahead of time, but you would get some kind of a ping or a notification to say, uh, your client accessed their record at such and such time and date. So that if you are concerned about, you know, gosh, there's something in there I'd like to explain to them in some more detail, you could do that at the next session. Or even if it's kind of an emergency thing, if you're very worried about how they interpreted something, you could make contact with them between sessions. Again, this doesn't impact the overwhelming majority of therapists. But the underlying philosophy is good of making it easier for clients to access their records. In most states, clients have a fundamental right to access their medical records upon request. So that's not a change for us. What is going to be at least a little bit different for those therapists impacted by this is that the federal guideline 
takes away some of our right to refuse access. So at least here in California, we can basically say no to a client who's asking for their records if we think that reviewing the records is somehow going to be damaging to the client or to our relationship with them. This federal standard would eliminate that and make it so we can't turn away a client's right to access their records. But again, that's it's very narrow. It's just if you are participating in this particular kind of infrastructure, working with these you know, narrow range of federal programs. I want to shift gears here a little bit away from this very, very narrow, specific 21st Century Cures Act and broaden this out just about client access to records. And you, know, you think you did a pretty good job of describing clients in general, but when it comes to records for minors, you know, who has access to these? How much do parents get to see into them? How much do minors have these abilities to kind of keep things private to themselves? I know in my practice with a lot of teenagers, I have you know these conversations of, you can't tell my parents this, right? And mm-hmm. but if it ends up in the records, where where do parents end up having uh, access to this kind of information? It's a little bit challenging because the legal stuff varies by state, right? So if you have parents who are consenting to the treatment of their child, so they're consenting on a minor's behalf, then generally speaking, and with some exceptions depending on the state that you're in, the parents have a right of access to those records. And again, in some states like California, you as the therapist could say no. You could say to the parents, I I don't think that you should have access to these records because that access would be damaging to the minor or to my relationship with them. At best, that's an awkward conversation. So it tends to go a little bit better to have exactly the kinds of early conversations in therapy that you're talking about, where you get on the same page with the kid and their parents about what information is going to go into the treatment record and what things are going to stay out of it that you're not going to inform the parents of. My wife, Angela Caldwell, she does a lot of family therapy. And so she winds up having these conversations a lot. And she'll tell parents at the very beginning of therapy, listen, there's some stuff that in order for therapy to be effective ought to be private between the therapist and the client so that the therapist can be a trusted adult. Anything that is immediately life-threatening, any kind of, of seriously dangerous behavior we are not going to hold secret for your kid. We're going to tell you about that as a parent as soon as we can so that you can be involved just like we will be involved in trying to protect this kid's safety. But if your kid is experimenting with not terribly harmful drugs, if your kid is raising questions about their sexual orientation or sexual identity, if your kid is engaging in some developmentally typical, if not ideal, uh, kind of risk-taking behavior. Those are things that we're going to work with the kid on, but we're not going to put specifics of into the record, and we're not going to tell you about them as a parent. Are you cool with that? And overwhelmingly, from what she said over the years, parents not only are cool with that, but they are very appreciative of kind of knowing where the distinction is, knowing what is and is not going to be in the records, but also that 
you as a therapist want to be the trusted adult for this kid. Parents generally want that for their kid. They wouldn't be bringing their kid to therapy otherwise. So, you know, to your question about who has access, the therapist, at least in a lot of locations, has some control over whether the parents can see records from the treatment of their kid. That control isn't absolute. Even in places like California, where you can say no to a parent, the parents can effectively appeal. And that sets forth this whole other sequence of events where now a third-party mental health professional has to review the records and they kind of make a determination. And your records still might get subpoenaed. So I wouldn't presume that my records are never going to be available to a parent, even if I don't want them to be available to a parent. But you do have at least some protection. It works best just if it's all spelled out clearly at the beginning of therapy of what you're going to put in there and what you're not. And I think the the big piece is also kind of recognizing that if you're seeing a minor child, that one of the audiences that may be reading over your shoulder, so to speak, is a parent. For sure. And so I know for myself, you know, kind of the the typical developmental, if not desirable, risk-taking behaviors or different types of things, I would have a, a, a phrase that covered a lot of ground. And I do have a good memory, so I was able to remember what it was typically, but like, you know, kind of life choices or mm-hmm. risk-taking behavior. It doesn't say what it is. It's It's, you know, kind of nodding to one of the things that you had talked about with the parents. Impulsivity, same idea. Impulsivity, you know, those types of things where it's something that will signal to me the the theme of the content. It it provides the forward momentum for the progress note, but it also doesn't explicitly state client was tagging. Yeah. (laughs) You know, those types of things. So I think it's, it's something where knowing that that's a potential audience, even if you've set forward, I, I think you make it less likely that they'll try to get the records or those kinds of things if you've set the expectation and the, the rationale up front. But I think even so, I've definitely had parents say, this is a great idea and I'm so glad. And then I find out from, this was when I was still seeing kids, that from the teen or the the child that they're like, yeah, I'm getting pumped for information after every session. Like, what did I talk about? What did I do? That kind of stuff. And so mm-hmm. there is still... The likelihood that parents are going to want, especially if something goes on, that parents are going to want some more information. So I think the takeaway is even if clients, because because we could talk with you forever, Ben, but we are running short on time. But even if clients could get their, you know, even though clients aren't going to be able to get their records immediately without, you know, kind of contacting you for most of us. And even though we can set parameters around what clients or parents expect to be in these records, we still should be aware our records can be subpoenaed, they can be requested, and they can certainly be viewed. And we should be aware that that's possible. Don't don't do uh, stinky notes. For sure. Well, and just quickly, a, a couple of other things on the topic, just because we haven't we haven't gotten there today. Depending again on the state that you're in, it's worth giving some attention to what else belongs in versus out of the clinical record, and. For folks who are here in California, one of the things that would not belong in the client file would be if you're in a position where you report suspected child abuse. And this, again, gets into a little bit of an, of an arcane piece of law, but the the legal audiences for a written report of suspected child abuse are somewhat different from the legally authorized audiences for a client 
file. And so at least here in California, the professional association camp has been encouraging folks to store written reports of suspected child abuse separately from the rest of the client file. I would sort of presume that that would also apply to written reports of suspected elder or dependent adult abuse. And then one other thing, uh, we've, we've talked about some other folks who I think are really great on this topic. Uh, Melissa Hall, Nicole Stoller-Peterson are fantastic. Barbara Griswold also is a great resource when it comes to a, a wide variety of insurance stuff. And I am a fan of hers. And she put out an article recently about ownership of records where I have a a bit of a disagreement with her. She encourages folks to think about records as the property of the client. And I think that's a useful metaphor when you're wondering about questions of access and that kind of thing. But I also don't want people to get confused about literal ownership, like who owns this property, because I do hear a lot of confusion about that among colleagues and supervisees. While the rules about this can and do vary from one state to the next, in general, it is either the individual clinician or the clinician's employer that owns a treatment record, not the client. And this is especially important if a therapist is changing workplaces and a client is following that therapist, the therapist can't necessarily take the file with them. It's the workplace that owns the record, like literally owns the property. And so if the client wants to follow the therapist to a new place, the client needs to, at the very least, sign a release of information so that the employer can release a copy of the client's file to this therapist or to the therapist's new employer, and the therapist can have that record available to them as they continue care with that client. So it's not, it's not actually something that the client typically owns unless your state says that in law. It's usually something that the clinician <laughs> or the employer owns in terms of property. On that note... Thank you so much for joining us here again today, Ben. (laughs) I try to take us out on a high note. It's something that um, everyone is passionately caring about. You know, if Ben mentioned that we're both educators, but I think that if we spent more of our time in education reflecting what we actually do in the fields, it would just be lecture to our students for about 45 minutes and then spend the rest of the class having them document down everything that they they were told there (laughs) it it, it just you know just to be proportionate but uh, thank you again for joining us here Uh, we always love your wisdom and you're a great friend of the show here where can people find you and, and all the stuff that you do that's very kind of you it's always a pleasure to talk to you both so thanks again for having me back if you want to find me, I most of what I do is at simplepracticelearning.com, uh, on-demand continuing education stuff. We actually have a course coming out there pretty soon on HIPAA in the age of COVID-19. Woo-hoo. So I think, I hope a lot of folks will find that relevant. And then I've got a blog at psychotherapynotes.com. And we'll include links to those in our show notes. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Verdoy and Dr. Ben Caldwell. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.